since we started this church three years ago, we have begun each new year focusing on prayer, reminding ourselves uh, of where we begin. One of the promises that we've stood on from the beginning is the words of Jesus to Peter in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a, what a precious promise. It's Christ who builds his church. That means it's Christ who saves people. It means it's Christ who builds us and matures us in him. That means it's Christ that builds his, his worldwide church and it's Christ who builds the individual local church. It's his Nothing here happens of any value apart from the work of God in Christ through His Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's our only hope. That's why our, our first distinctive is fervent prayer, dependent and expectant. We need it. That's our only hope. It's all we stand on. We need to be consistently reminding ourselves of the, the centrality of and the importance of prayer. And one of the reasons we need to consistently be reminded of that is that it can often be discouraging, can't it? Prayer's hard. It's a surprise, I think, often. Prayer ought to be. It is one of the greatest privileges that we have in this world. It ought to leave us over the moon excited that we get to enter into the presence of the Almighty God, that He hears us when we speak. That's mind-blowing. And yet it so quickly becomes tedious, difficult. That's your first blank there, kids. Sorry, prayer is hard. It's shockingly hard. And I think people often get discouraged because they think it, it should be easy, right? Right? And, and they finally kind of purpose in their hearts to make some changes. You know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to begin to pray regularly. And then they're just genuinely surprised. This is difficult. And then they're discouraged. And maybe you're beyond that. Maybe you've persevered through that. You're not surprised by that anymore. And yet there's this ongoing battle, the weakness of the flesh. It's hard. I mean, it sounds silly, but it's hard to get out of bed. Am I right? Am I the only one that has that problem? I'll just hit that snooze one more time. There goes a little bit of prayer. There goes a little bit of Bible reading. There goes, oh no, I need to get up. I got to go. It's hard to stay focused. It's hard to stay on task. I, I use every trick in the book I can to try to keep myself centered on what is, what's actually going on. It's hard to remember. I'm not just speaking words into the air. I'm talking to God himself. It's not easy. Then there are those of you who like Elite athletes have trained yourselves in prayer. You have diligently worked. It's still not easy for you, though. You've been praying consistently for years, and yet you know all too well those struggles still exist. And in fact, you have an added struggle of that list of things that you have been praying for for years. And God hasn't answered yet. Maybe it's a persistent illness, maybe it's a wayward child, maybe it's a faltering marriage, and you've been asking and asking and asking. There's no response. And it's easy to be discouraged. Sometimes you, you wait in hope and faith, and other times those storm clouds roll in so dark they block out the sun. It's a battle, and we fight this, this battle against discouragement and doubt and, and wondering about the value and purpose of prayer. 
for all of us, from the, from the seasoned prayer warrior to the very beginning faltering amateur, prayer is hard. And for all of us, Jesus has this great encouragement in Luke 18 that I want to look at together this morning. This chapter opens with these words, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. Isn't that what we need? Something to help us always pray and not lose heart. It's a great place for us to begin 2019. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, Luke 18. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open in your lap, in your hands. Um, This is not about me. It's not about my words or any wisdom that I could bring. Um, My only hope uh, is God's Word. And so we're just going to God's Word together. And I want you to see that clearly. Um, Luke 18, we find a bit of an odd story. And we can get this wrong easily if, if we're not careful. It's a parable. It's a story made up by Jesus. But unlike a lot of the parables that we're most familiar with, this one's a parable of contrast. It doesn't show us what God is like. It shows us what God is, is not like. Let me read it for you and then we'll dig into it a little more. Luke 18, starting at verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus tells us outright, The purpose of this parable, it's one of your blanks, kids, is that the disciples of Christ ought always to pray and not lose heart. Ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the question is why? What's going on here? What brought Jesus to this point? And we need to understand the context. I think we often get confused with Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Because we're used to biographies, we're comfortable in biographies, and and we we expect the Gospels to be biographies, just a a story of Jesus' life. And we expect them to flow just in kind of chronological order. And then we get confused. And you start comparing them and asking questions like, well, did Jesus flip the tables earlier in his ministry, or later in his ministry, or twice? And we're not sure, because these aren't biographies, they're Gospels. It's a genre all on its own. And the stories and the teachings of Jesus aren't put in strictly chronologically. They're put in context to one another. They're not just telling us what happened. Um, These authors are teaching with the way they've arranged their books. And so we need to pay attention to the context. What's going going on around this passage? And, And in this particular instance, the context is the second coming of Christ. And let me show you why I say that. The key question at the end of this story, nevertheless, will the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And if you look back all the way to 17 verse 5, 
the apostles ask the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith, Jesus. And I think everything in between those needs to be taken together. Actually, the next parable, too, kind of flows back into this. But they've asked Jesus, teach us how to have faith. Teach us how to do that better. Grow our faith. And then Luke shows us how Jesus answered that question through teaching and through action. He lays out for them, this is what faith looks like. And so first in in verses 7 to 11, he tells them the story of the faithful servant who serves humbly and, and diligently, not thinking he's doing something great, not expecting some great recognition. He's just serving the Lord. Then he tells the story of the the healing of the ten lepers. Kids, you know this story. Ten lepers are healed, and and what happens? How many come back to him? Just one. Just one comes back. And the the point there, Jesus is saying that true faith comes out of thankfulness, out of gratitude. That's what faith looks like. And then he starts to push into why we need faith. He draws their attention to the final judgment, the second coming, when Jesus returns again. And he warns them, this is, it's going to be like the flood of Noah. It's going to be like it was at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not pretty stories. And he says, people are going to be going about their business, going day to day, minding their own business, eating, drinking, having parties, going to work, doing their thing. And all of a sudden, God's judgment will come. And in that day, uh, only those who have faith will be rescued. Faith matters. It's a big deal. That's what he's talking about. Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? That's all that separates these people. He says two are, two are going to be lying in bed together. They're, they're living the same life. They're lying in bed side by side, and one will be taken to judgment, and the other one will be spared. Two women will be working side by side, and one will be taken, and one will be spared. The difference is faith. The difference between Noah and the rest of the world is this time is that Noah believed God. The difference between Lot and his family and the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah is that Lot had faith in God. Judgment is coming. And and faith is what is required. Faith is what saves us from that judgment. Faith is important. It's what leads him to this parable. And now he's finally answering the, the plea of the disciples, increase our faith. Okay, here's how to increase your faith. Here's how to remain faithful. And the answer is pray. Pray always and don't lose heart. He tells them this parable that's supposed to help them in that, supposed to encourage them to continue to pray and not lose heart. Let's just make sure we understand the story and what's going on here before we move forward. Verse 2, Jesus puts us in an imaginary city with an imaginary judge. And all we know about this judge is he's wicked. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about what's truthfully right or wrong, and he doesn't care about people. All he cares about is himself. He's completely self-serving. And judges in that day would have been taken from very important and powerful businessmen. So he's a big deal in his city. He's a judge. He's respected and honored. He has great influence and great power. And the other character is the exact opposite. She's a widow. And not just that, but she's a widow in a very patriarchal society a world where a woman's testimony was worth about half of a man's, right? Women were often looked down on, discredited. They were small. They were unimportant. Where's your husband? And the fact that she's in court uh, tells us something. It tells us she doesn't have, not only is she missing a husband, she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a son-in-law. She has no man that she can go to to help her in this. She is on her own. 
In today's world, it would be like a kid walking into the courtroom. Like, what are you doing here? You don't belong. Like, where's your mom and dad? Bring me somebody important to talk to. And the fact that she's pleading for justice as a widow shows that she's probably very poor. This is, this is some dispute that matters greatly to her. Her last uh, plot of land that she owned from her husband, something um, that is incredibly important to her. And the presumption is she's right, right? She's asking for justice, but she's totally powerless. And so her only weapon, her only hope is this tenacity. She keeps on continually pestering this judge day after day. Give me justice. Give me justice. Come on, judge. Do what's right, judge. You know what's right, judge. She's waiting for him as he comes out from work in the evenings, and she's following him as he goes to work in the mornings. She's knocking on the windows. Come on, judge. Do what's right, judge. Let's be honest, kids. You've done that, haven't you? Right? You ask your dad for something, and he doesn't answer. Dad, come on, dad. Dad, we're going to do it, dad? Asking and asking and asking. That's what she does. And at first the judge says, no, it's not worth my time. All right, I, I have to deal with some other important businessman and, and tell him that he has to give money back to you or something along those lines. There's no gain in this for me. You have nothing to bribe me with. Nobody cares if I neglect you. It does, does me no good. But she continues to pester him till he eventually says, not because I care about what's right and wrong, not because I care about you as a person, but because you continue to bother me, fine, I'll do it. Just to, just to get her to stop, just to get her to go away. He's worried that she's going to beat him down by her continual coming. It's going to wear him out. So reluctantly, he gives her justice. Now, this story is to teach us about us and about God and about prayer. So help me out, kids. Who are, who are we in this story? We're like the widow, right? We're weak and powerless. We need help. Who's God in the story? Oh, trick question. It's kind of like God, right? He's the one with the power. He's the one that we're going to for help, for justice. But the point of the story is that God is not like the wicked judge, right? Jesus' point in verse 7 if this wicked judge, if even that horrible man would give justice, how much more would God? The judge cared nothing for her. He cared nothing for justice. God cares greatly for us. He cares greatly for justice. How much more can we depend on him? So let's boil this story down. Three handles that we can kind of hold on to as we go forward. Jesus encourages us to pray frequently, to pray fearlessly, and to pray faithfully. Pray frequently. Do you want to grow in faith this year? Do you want to come to know God more this year? Do you want to trust Him more consistently? Do you want to walk with Him more closely and personally? Do you want to be among those when Christ returns that He will find faithful waiting for Him? Those to whom he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I know I do. I'm, I'm hoping Jesus is coming back 2019. Anybody with me on that? I mean, if he does 2018, I'm good with that too. Um, but hey, let's, maybe this is the year. I want to be ready. I want to be ready. So prayer. Jesus says, this is how to increase your faith. Pray and don't lose heart. And the first is to pray 
frequently. I think we're fairly accustomed to hearing that. Pray always, pray without ceasing. You've seen it on the coffee mugs. It's up there on Facebook as you scroll on past. That's not new to us, but it was new to them. Um, As a faithful Jew, um, they had been taught, do not pray more than three times a day. It's not it's not biblical. They, they kind of started with the Bible. They looked at Daniel. Um, that Daniel prayed three times a day. Uh, and then they wrongly implied from that that that's the max. Guys, we're good. And that was written in the Talmud in their authoritative teaching. You don't want to annoy God. Okay, you, you need to give him his space. So ask him three times a day and, and that's it. You've done what you need to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Pray always. Look at this powerful, persistent widow pleading with the judge. And even a wicked judge, how much that that moved him. How much more will God be moved by the persistence of those whom he loves? When we ask for justice, which he loves. Don't pray three times. Pray consistently. Don't, Don't just ask me three times and then leave it. Continue to come. And I think sometimes we get this this idea in our heads that maybe that's more holy. If I would just ask God and then leave it, I don't need to ask again. I've left it in God's hands. Uh, I'm done. Or maybe we wonder, what does prayer even accomplish anyway? God knows what I need before I ask him, and he has ordained what the future will be. I'm not going to change his mind, am I? So is is there any value in even praying? And, And Jesus' answer is yes. Pray frequently, pray persistently because it matters, because it moves God. Now there's some theological nitpicking we can do, and sometimes we just need to hold two things in our hands and just say the Bible teaches God has ordained the future and it's not going to change, and God asks us to pray and he answers prayer, and how those work together is not my thing. I don't know. But God commands us, Jesus commands us to continue in prayer. You're not going to change the future that God has ordained, and yet maybe God has planned to use your persistent prayer to get to that future. God loves to answer prayer. Yes, He knows what you need before He asks it, but don't we, even as fathers, sometimes wait, knowing what our children want and need, and just waiting for them to ask? Pray frequently. Persistently. Now, coming back to this pestering idea. Kids, you know, right? Does your dad like it when you continue to ask him and ask him and ask him? I sure don't when my kids do that. Drives me nuts, right? But you know what? God likes it. He wants us to continue to ask him like that, just like that that kid. But you know, if I'm honest, why don't I like that as a father when my kids come to me and asking again and again when I I don't answer them? Probably because I'm not answering because I don't have the answer. I don't know. I'm just not smart enough. Dad, can we go swimming tomorrow? I don't know. I'm not sure what tomorrow holds. Or, or maybe I'm not able to do it. Dad, can we have a horse? No. We, we have a park behind our place, but I think that's frowned on. Uh, I'm not able to deliver, and so I dodge those questions. And, and you know what? For me as a dad, it's kind of embarrassing, and it hurts my pride if you keep asking me and I can't answer. That's not God, is it? God knows what the future holds. He's not surprised by anything, and he's able to do anything. 
And so God's not answering is not because he's not able. It's not because he doesn't know. It's because he wants you to keep asking. He's asking you to keep coming, keep trusting me, keep coming to me. How's your prayer life? Is it persistent or is it kind of intermittent? Is it intentional and and focused or is it kind of haphazard? Do you regularly, passionately, eagerly come to God pleading with Him for for growth in the faith, for victory over sin, for, for salvation of loved ones, for more personal, close walk with Him? Set aside times of prayer. Block that off. I mean, somehow we, we amazingly make time for our favorite TV shows and then we run out of time for prayer. We, we make time to eat breakfast and we run out of time for prayer. Get up a few minutes earlier. Spend time in God's Word. Spend time responding to God in prayer as you read. But, but don't let that be your only time in prayer. Think about some of those those key moments in the day that you can seize. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It's one of the habits that I'm kind of working on building in my life right now. Um, Before I begin the day, before anything else, my alarm goes off. Before I look at text messages, before I go down the black hole of what's happening in the news, I'm going to hit the snooze and I'm going to use one snooze cycle to just begin my day in prayer. God, help me. Help me use today for your glory. Help me to live today in a way that honors you. Then I'm going to get up and spend some time in God's word and go through my my prayer lists and and work through my prayer app. And then again, when I stop for lunch, I'm going to stop and pray. God, take take the work that I've done. Use it for your glory. And when I come back from lunch, I just need to reset and just spend just two minutes to pray. Stop for supper. This one gets me. Do you guys find that? You sit down to, to pray before a meal and you, and you say amen and you go, I didn't really pray. I just kind of rattle off these words that I say every day. Why don't we actually pray? And before my head hits the bed at night, pray. Just, again, just, just moments. I'm not, it's not a big deal. It's not a, a super spiritual thing. This is just taking those small moments. Figure out your day. Capitalize on your commute, on those moments between meetings, uh, on, on the transition points in your day, and, and just get in the habit of coming to God again. I've heard Christians marvel at the Muslims. Wow. They stop and pray three times a day. They are so dedicated. God, that's a That's a sad commentary on the state of our prayer lives. That should seem so small to us. We should look at them and say, three times, that's it? That's all you're doing? Aren't you constantly communing with your God? We need to be tenacious in prayer. God God invites us to that. But I dare say that's, again, not new to you. We typically know that we ought to pray. We we typically feel that pull to, to pray more. We want to grow in that. The question is, how do we do that? Specifically, how do we do that and not lose heart? Not be discouraged, not have it as a a dreary task. And the answer Jesus gives is, is to pray not only frequently, but pray fearlessly. This is right at the heart of the, the meaning of this story. Put yourself in the place of this poor widow. Right? She is desperate, and she has no confidence. No confidence at all that this wicked judge will hear her plea, will answer her. She's terrified. This could be her life on the line. 
That's what drives her to this persistence is this consuming fear that she might not be heard. But remember, God is precisely what that judge is not. Our encouragement to prayer without losing heart is knowing who God is. And even if this, if this wicked judge gave justice to the persistent widow, how much more will a loving God answer us? Look again at verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? First, we can pray fearlessly because God is good. Kids, that's on your sheet there. We can pray fearlessly because God is good. Realize first who you're praying to. The almighty God who is good and righteous, the one who can be absolutely trusted. I love Psalm 119.68. Simple and straightforward. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. That's the God we come to. He's good and he does what is good. That's the God that we pray to. That ought to give us this absolute confidence and hope. He's going to do what's right. He is he's good and he's just. And we can pray fearlessly because God is good. And then we can pray fearlessly because he loves us. He loves us. Think of who you are before God when you come to him. Now, admittedly, this is a little scarier. Um, you mean I, I ought to think of my wretched, sin, sinful state before a holy God? The fact that I have personally offended him even today and am worthy of nothing but his wrath? Well, yeah. yeah. That kind of humility is very fitting. It's appropriate coming into the throne room of God. But what does Jesus call you here? His elect. His elect. When you come to God, you're not coming as, a, as an outsider, as an intruder, as a stranger and a nuisance. If you're saved, you're coming in as his adopted child, beloved and chosen by him. He chose you. He elected you personally and specifically. That's amazing. That's the grounds on which we come to him. And chosen by God means to always be the object of his blessing. The object of his love and mercy. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Because we're chosen by God, we can pray without fear of, of rejection. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus says you were chosen to have your prayers answered. That's, that's part of the deal. It's amazing. Romans eight twenty eight. you know it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. All things to his elect. We can know that he's working all things for our good. That's, that's a radically different position than this widow. We can pray fearlessly. And yet, we still doubt, don't we? We still wonder, can God be trusted? Is he really for me? 
Will he really give me every good thing? This thing that I'm going through now, why is he not answering me? Is he good? How do we know for sure that God will give justice to his elect who cry out to him even though we don't deserve it? And the answer is because he did not give justice to his only son who cried out to him from the cross. Think about that. The same language is used here, is used in in Matthew 27, 46. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you not given me justice? And the answer is that he received what we deserved, wrath. That we might receive what he deserved, love. His prayer went unanswered so that our prayers could be answered. Now, to be clear, Jesus knew exactly what was going on and his purpose on the cross. That was said for our benefit. I think there was heart behind it, but you want confidence in your prayers. Look at the cross. To know that that God will be kind and gracious to his elect. Look at the cross. He's already paid the price. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God sacrificed himself on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and to make us the objects of his infinite love rather than the objects of his wrath, why wouldn't he follow through then in loving us? Kids, it would be like if your dad took you to the toy store and he bought you the most expensive toy, this beautiful little toy car that you could actually drive in and it was super fast and super awesome and it's exactly what you wanted, but he spent everything he had to get it. And then as you're opening the box and unpacking it and you're getting ready to to drive it, a little sheet of stickers falls out of the box. Do you think dad will give you the stickers too? Do you think he paid for that expensive toy and gave it to you with joy and excitement, but then he's not going to give you the stickers to put on it? No, he's going to give you the stickers. It comes with it. It's, it's part of the deal. He's already bought it. That's our God. He's died on the cross to save us from our sins. Will he withhold anything else? Will he not give us everything that he purchased? 1 John 5 This is the confidence we have toward God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever he asks, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Pray frequently and pray fearlessly, knowing that that God's favor has already been won on your behalf. We have it. And then finally, pray faithfully. Jesus continues Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? The Son of Man, when he comes, find faith on the earth. That's a hard verse. That's tricky. I got to confess, as I started reading through this passage, preparing for this morning, that's the verse that I stopped at and went, I don't know what to do with that. That doesn't make sense to me. He will not delay. He will give justice speedily. Why is persistent prayer necessary? Why would we be tempted to lose heart? 
Why is he asking, will he find faith waiting on earth when he comes if he's going to answer their prayers without delay? Jesus appears to be contradicting his own words. And and this is precisely where we often lose heart. Really, God, this is speedy? I'm still here. Why are you delaying? I'm still hurting, Lord. They're still not saved, Lord. I've been praying for this for years. I'm struggling with this. Life is hard. I need your help. Where are you, God? Here's the promise. It's given in the form of a question. Will he delay long over them? But the obvious rhetorical answer is no, he will not delay long. What does that mean? How do we we make sense of that? How do we take hope from that? The first thing I think we need to see this parable in the context of the second coming. That's what he's talking about here. Now, I think this applies to our prayer lives in general, but specifically here, this is the prayer that he's talking about. The prayer for justice is the prayer for the second coming. It's the prayer for that final justice when God will come and bring judgment against all those who oppose him and bring punishment on all those who persecute and oppress his church. That's the cry going out to him in view here. It's the prayer that's prayed by the Chinese Christians right now in prison because of Christ. It's the prayer prayed by believers all over the world who face persecution and torture and all kinds of turmoil for their faith. And by hundreds of thousands of martyred saints from ages past. They're gathered around the throne right now. Revelation 6 gives us this this glimpse And it tells us they cry out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Is he delaying long over their prayers? It's been about 2,000 years. It feels like a long time. But let's flip it back and see this closer context of this parable. The wicked judge was delaying. He was putting her off. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to deal with this. I hope this will just go away. He's dragging his feet. God's not like that judge. He's not putting you off. He's not just avoiding the issue. He's not hoping this will go away and that he doesn't have to deal with it. The promise here is that he will act speedily, decisively, at the exact right moment. He's not procrastinating. He's not putting you off. God's timing always has a purpose. God's timing always has a purpose. One purpose we see from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His patience, His careful, intentional waiting for just the right time is because He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, is because He is waiting for the maximum amount of sinners to come to repentance. But it's also a time of testing. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, 
Though now, for a little while, in this waiting period, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's waiting, which is our trial, tests purifies, refines our faith like gold, and it will result in glory when he returns. As we await the return of Christ, praying frequently, praying persistently for his return, that that faithful waiting is a testing, it's it's a proving ground for our faith. That's what Jesus is talking about at the end of verse 8. He's told them that the end is coming, but it's not Yet, judgment and justice will be brought down, but just wait. Pray frequently, pray fearlessly, and pray faithfully. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? God waits to answer prayer to build our faith. God waits to answer prayer to build our faith. Peter goes on to say, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, Do not be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is him answering the plea of the disciples to increase their faith. He's refining it. He's testing it. He's proving it by trials talking again about this waiting of the second coming of Christ. Romans 8, Paul says that the whole of creation, we ourselves are are groaning, we're, we're waiting for that day to come. And then in verses 24 and 25, he says, for in this hope we are saved. We're saved in this place of hoping and waiting. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees, but we hope for what we do not see. And we wait for it with patience. If Christ were to come back immediately, if He were to answer every prayer instantaneously, what opportunity would there be for faith at all? What would we be hoping for if we had everything that we asked for? So in God's perfect timing, He carefully, deliberately waits for that appointed day. He's, He's building our faith. Sometimes that's hard. That's really hard sometimes. That waiting can be in a very painful place. God is building your faith. He's saying, will you trust me through this? Will you trust me as you wait for me to answer? We need to expect that. We need to even embrace that. Knowing that his purpose is not simply to give us what we ask for, but to give us what we need. Deliberately waiting before answering our prayers for His return and His final justice. Deliberately waiting before answering many of our prayers for for all kinds of different things so that when He returns, He might find us filled with faith. Trusting Him. A faith that is tested and purified and genuine. Don't give up. Don't, Don't relax your prayers. He's not saying... 
go away and wait quietly. He's saying, continue to come to me and ask. Faithfully praying and faithfully waiting in hope. So when that day comes, he might find us faithful. James 5, 7 paints this beautiful picture. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, the crop that he's planted? He's patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you want to grow in faith? I love the way James puts that. Do you want to have your heart established for the coming of the Lord? Give yourself to prayer. Prayer has not been a consistent part in your life. Hey, make, make 2019 the year that you learn to pray. Expect it to be hard and expect it to be worth it. Have you grown weary or faint-hearted in prayer? Maybe 2019 needs to be the year that you persist in prayer for the building of your faith. Pray frequently, passionately, knowing that God answers prayer, knowing that He calls us to come to Him persistently in prayer. Pray fearlessly, believing in the goodness of God and His, and His love for you. That's not, that's not going to change. And pray faithfully, knowing that His design is often for us to wait in this tension, asking persistently and waiting patiently, trusting Him, hoping in Him for what our eyes don't see trusting in His goodness and His love, knowing that He will soon return. That one day, every prayer will be answered to its full. He will act swiftly and decisively at just the right time. And if we persist in prayer, He will find faith on this earth when He returns.